five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. This is the second part of this week's podcast on an introduction to China's space economy. If you didn't listen to the first episode, probably would be best if you did. We're going to catch right up here to a question on IPOs in China's space economy. Once again, my guest is Blaine Curio, a space and satcom industry consultant based in Hong Kong who focuses primarily on China. All right. Listen in. Uh, yes, what, yeah. com- what companies have gone public, and uh, what are some of the and and, and let's talk about uh, because uh, in our pre-interview you had uh, told me about Shanghai Starboard, so maybe you can talk about that a bit. Sure. So I, I would probably uh, I would designate two different types of companies as having gone public thus far. So the first type, as you mentioned on, on the Starboard. So primarily commercial space companies. There have been a couple of them that have gone public. And the Starboard, uh, to give your, your listeners a little bit more context, is is basically, you could imagine it as a kind of uh, up to now a wannabe competitor to the NASDAQ from China. So basically the listing requirements on traditional Chinese exchanges are rather stringent. If you are not profitable for quite some quarters in a row, if you don't have certain financial requirements met, then you cannot list on traditional exchanges and it takes a long time, very expensive, all these things. And so the starboard in Shanghai is meant to allow for companies that are either earlier stage or higher risk or some combination of both to list their shares publicly. And it's a relatively new concept. They only opened a starboard, I think, last year, possibly 2018. And um, since then, we've seen a couple of space companies or space-related companies list successfully. So the, the most noteworthy one probably was PiSat, P-I-E, like Pixelated Information Expert, I believe is what that acronym stands for. So PiSat. And they are a uh, Earth observation and sort of location-based services, data analytics kind of software building company. So they basically build software systems for EO data and location-based services data. And they had an IPO on the Starboard last year. They are now, I think, worth about 8 billion RMB, so about 1.2 billion US. Um, there have been a couple of other attempted IPOs on the Starboard by space companies. One of them did not go through a company called 21st Century Aerospace Technology based in Beijing. Um, but yeah, so anyway, there are a handful of private companies that are trying to list on this Starboard, which is, I think, going to be an important thing to watch because it it it, it will give space is a really big investment area in China right now. I think people really are, are cognizant of space. And, and this actually relates to the second type of company that's gone, that has gone public. So the second type of company that has gone public would be the kind of established commercial Sorry, the established traditional space companies, which are primarily subsidiaries of Cask. And when they have gone public, they have tended to go public on the more traditional like Shanghai exchange. And when they have gone public, oftentimes their share price has just like skyrocketed. And in China, the exchanges have a rule where a share price cannot change by more than 20%, sorry, 10% up or down in a given day. And for, for like the most recent example, this company, Shanxi Zhongtian Rocket. So they are a subsidiary of Cask. They build rocket engines. They IPO'd in late September, and they had something like 17 days in a row of 10, 10% up. And when you consider that it was 10% up compounding, I mean, it, it ended up being like a fourfold increase from the IPO price. And um, 
this was an indication to me of just the the extent to which investors in China see space as being quite a hot industry, and there's not a lot of opportunities to invest in it at the moment. And so I think once you have, and, and we saw a similar phenomenon with China Satcom when they IPO'd uh, last year, they had a situation where their share price just went up by 10% every day for like six or seven days in a row. So I think for both commercial companies and for these traditional companies, um, investors see space as a hot industry. They see it as a good opportunity to invest. And so there, there is going to presumably be increased interest both on the starboard and uh, you know, among these traditional kind of cask subsidiaries. And just the last point I would bring up is that when you look at the cask subsidiaries, you'll see, you know, cask will float 20% of the shares or 25%, and they will maintain ownership of like 75, 80% of the shares. And then the value of the company goes up by like four times. You're looking at like a couple billion dollars in paper gains for cask. So it's, um, yeah, that happens. That happens here too. I don't really know how that goes, but yeah. Well, that's good to know. Um, we'll have to keep an eye on the uh, Shanghai starboard, which I suppose, um, I, I would equate it to like a venture exchange uh, we have in in Toronto. There's a Toronto Venture Exchange, and there's other venture exchanges uh, globally. Um, so, uh, since uh, let's see here, yeah, we're doing okay for time, but we we've got two big other subjects to get through here. So, um, let's talk about uh, launch companies because there's a lot of launch wannabes in China, and some are actually having some success, uh, and some are trying to copy the SpaceX uh, vertical takeoff and vertical landing. So who are the leaders, and what's the status of these companies? Um, And will these companies see customers beyond China? So a lot of of launch companies in China, for sure. And we we just saw another one come out last week with uh, Xi'an Zilio, uh, Freedom Star, launch company. So so um, among these probably 20 or so commercial launch companies, you have, let's say, six or eight that I would say are plausibly building systems-level rockets, which is to say they have a plan to build a whole rocket, launch the whole rocket, and, and you know, oftentimes land and reuse the whole rocket. The rest of these launch companies are either focusing on some specific element of the rocket, so they're building engines, or they're trying to build some other even more subsystems-level thing, or they may be trying to build a rocket, but frankly speaking, it's like it was a company founded a year ago. They're trying to build a small, solid fuel rocket, and it just doesn't. I don't think there's any sense in doing that when you're the 16th company trying to do that. So that being said, the leading companies right now among these launch companies, you have uh, XSpace, which I mentioned earlier, and they're kind of a Kasich subsidiary, and then you have LandSpace and iSpace and Galactic Energy that are kind of the three most clearly advanced commercial launch companies. And all three of them are pretty much at the point where they have either launched successfully a rocket into orbit, or in the case of land space, they tried and failed with their first rocket, and they have a second rocket now that they're, they're planning to launch next year. And so basically, um, these three companies are now at the point where they're selling to commercial or, or to state-owned customers. And so most of the customers up to now for these commercial launch companies have been private Chinese satellite manufacturers or like constellation operators, or you have a lot of universities or like research institutes. I mean, like an astonishing number of research institutes. And so up until now, that's provided a, you know, a a fairly good trickle of demand. Like for example, for 2020, you have probably seen top of my head, like 15 or 20 or 25, maybe commercially manufactured small sets launched by China. 
minimum. Um, and so you have now um, the situation where there's a, an increasing number of rockets being built. There's an increasing number of satellites being built. And it does look like the supply of rockets is going to outstrip the number of satellites. Like I think launch, there's no way you're going to have 20 launch companies in, in China over the next yeah, three to five years. Um, but I suspect that those companies that do survive are going to be very competitive at what they do. And that could be the systems level companies, probably at least one or two of them. But I imagine we will also see some really innovative um, subsystems level companies. So for example, there's a launch company called Jojo Yunjian, and they're trying to develop a, a liquid uh, methylox engine. And that's all they're really, it's all they're trying to do. And they have deals with other systems level launch companies to sell their, their engine to these companies. Um, and the, the other thing I would mention is that a lot of these commercial companies are developing these things with very similar dimensions to the state-owned rockets. So for example, land space, you look at the rocket family and the diameter is like 2.25, 3.35 meters are the two, and then potentially five meters. And if you compare that with the long march family of rockets, it's the same down to the millimeter. And so you have to assume that there's going to be some level of either land space selling their components, their technology to the state-owned companies or, or some some business going on there. So definitely it is it is astonishing how many rocket companies there are. And, and to my earlier point about the funding, I mean, of that uh, of that 15-ish billion RMB in funding over these last six years, uh, about half of that would have gone into launch. So it's, it's, a, it's attracted a lot of money over these last few years. And there's a lot of launch companies in China. And again, frankly speaking, I don't think there is room for all of them for the medium to long term. But um, I think that those that do survive should be quite competitive. So um, it sounds like we're going to see what we're starting to see over uh, in the U.S. where um, uh, rather than uh, government spending money on their own launchers, except perhaps the, the heavy lift, uh, these smaller companies, startups, once they get to a certain stage, uh, will actually fill in uh, to for the government to buy launches from them, and because they've innovated and the rest of it, smaller um, uh, startup co- or should I say smaller companies, uh, in theory, it should be a cheaper uh, cost to the government. Yes, yeah, I think that's a fair that's a fair way of putting it. And I mean, frankly, like, and it, it's been a really interesting dynamic to watch, especially in launch. Um, Things like like human resources. So, for example, there was this big controversy a couple of years ago when Landspace tried to hire this uh, senior engineer from a subsidiary of Cask, and the senior engineer was going to get paid a lot more money to work for Landspace, and it was you know much uh, well going to get paid a lot more money. And uh, Cask or the subsidiary of Cask tried to sue this guy to stop him from from changing companies, and it went to the the Supreme Court of China, and and eventually they said, oh, it's fine. And uh, the the rumor, and I cannot substantiate this rumor, but I've heard from people that this decision went all the way up to the very, very top of China, and that the person at the very top said, "Eh, as long as he stays in China, he can do whatever he wants. We we don't really mind. So, yeah, this is an interesting dynamic, and and I think to your point, the end result is likely going to be that the very big projects will remain done by the state and that you will get, um, you know, smaller things that are being done by, by commercial companies that are, that are going to be probably faster and more nimble and innovating and are a little bit more kind of market, market oriented. Yeah. And considering how much money the state invests in state owned enterprises, uh, and the economy, um, uh, and, and, 
China's GDP growing at a slower rate, uh, it might uh, it, it kind of makes sense to uh, try and get those costs down and uh, you know have the private sector uh, uh, you know uh, take up some of that slack. Now, uh, in terms of vertical landing, uh, you know the only people doing that right now uh, are SpaceX. Um, who who's doing it, and any is anybody uh, close to being successful? So I, I so most of the Chinese launch companies that are trying to do reusability are are doing the sort of traditional vertical takeoff, vertical landing uh, approach. But I none of them are particularly far along. I mean, none of them are are very. I mean, depending on one's definition of very close to success, I, I don't think any of the commercial companies are within three years of, of doing that. Because I mean, I think right now most of the commercial launch companies in China. I know most of the commercial launch companies in China have not yet actually launched their first rocket at all. And so I think that the, the development path that most of these companies seem to have taken is they first tried to develop a solid rocket, which can do maybe two or three or 400 kilograms to Leo. And then they plan to develop a sort of medium sized, potentially liquid powered rocket, which might be reusable. And then, you know, whatever it is beyond that. Now, so there, there is one company that I would mention that does not do vertical takeoff, vertical landing. It's a company called Space Transportation. And they they have this cool concept of for a rocket that looks almost like a Concorde, but standing up. And uh, they want to do horizontal landing. So they would uh, they would have these kind of gliders that, that uh, the rocket would be able to, to come down on. But I think in, in general, most of the companies in China that are planning to do reusability would be doing the kind of traditional BTVL. And I would think that the soonest we might expect to see a, you know, let's say a land space, for example, uh, land a rocket that, that I, I would expect if, if we were to see that before 2025, I would be a little bit surprised. All right. So we're basically out of time, but I'm going to ask you one more question and it's going to sort of be a lead up into another podcast we'll have to do down the road uh, because we're going to get you come we're going to get you to come back and we're going to do some uh, very focused ones. This was like more of a high level introduction uh, podcast uh, to what's going on in China. Um, so let's just talk quickly about constellations for a minute. Um, there's a lot of constellations being built or being built or proposed everywhere. Um, what are some of the uh, leading uh, uh, constellations um, that our audience might not be aware of? Uh, and uh, who are they developing them for? Is this mostly for uh, uh, the Chinese government? Sure. So I, I would first mention that over the last five years, we've seen a bunch of different both private and state-owned companies in China come out with plans for constellations. And since the beginning, my personal view has been it is very unlikely that a private company will be able to operate their own constellation. I think that when we consider what a constellation is, it is a space-based internet service provider, if, if it were in theory. And in China... You know, two industries that are very highly regulated are space and internet, uh, you know, internet service provision. And so I think that uh, the, the conclusion is that whatever company is going to be actually launching and operating that, that space-based infrastructure will be a state-owned company. And what we've seen over these last few years is that there, there have been several big constellations announced by the state, by the government, and that has been 
it's been slow going, but they exist and they have funding and they have big companies that are that are working to try to move them forward. And then we've seen a bunch of commercial companies that originally said we want to have our own constellation. And this would have been starting about five, six years ago. And over the last five or six years, most of them, so this would include companies like Comsat, this would include companies like Galaxy Space. Uh, it would also include um even like Linkshore, you could, you could, but anyway, most of these companies over these last five or six years, they have started to transition from, we want to have our own constellation to something more like, we want to build lots of satellites for someone else's constellation or something like we want to work on the integration of space and ground infrastructure for someone else's constellation. And I, again, I think that the, the conclusion that I draw here is that these companies have all realized that it's very, very, very hard in the context of China to be an internet service provider if you're a privately owned company. And that's especially hard if you also want to do it in a, in a space wave. And so um, I think that moving forward, most likely what we're going to see from China is that there will be a state-owned broadband constellation. Right now, the kind of the, the official one that people talk about is Hongyan, uh, which is being done by CASC. Although there's this kind of, there's a phrase that everyone in China uses now as kind of unofficially, everyone knows that it exists. It is called Guowang. So GW, it means like the national net kind of thing. And this would be kind of the the implied big Leo constellation that we expect from China in the next few years. And so you have um, about four weeks ago, there was an article published with some ITU filings of GW such and such. So it was like filings for constellations of like GW1, GW59, et cetera. And the GW should be Guowang. So G-U-O-W-A-N-G, Guowang. Uh, and again, this is national network. So so I think um, my, my personal sort of speculation is that we we will see there to be an acceleration of the deployment of this constellation over the next couple of years, partly stemmed by the acceleration of Starlink and by the sort of, um, for example, by the fact that Starlink now has a contract with the U.S. military. I think that makes China pay much closer attention to this. Um, I think we're going to see this acceleration from, from a state-owned constellation. And again, I think we will see private companies playing more of a supporting role either through... Um, say, manufacturing some number of the satellites in the constellation or through providing some um, you know, some other kind of supporting technologies. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we, it's definitely a topic to watch moving forward. It's going to be the, the right. constellations coming out of time. Not sort of talk about the internet side of it, but what about, you know, if somebody wants to put up an, an Earth observation uh constellation for you know hyperspectral or optical or you know some specific type of sensors is that still going to be just the state that's going to say we're going to do you know we're going to be in charge of that or you can help us with that but it's going to be us that are going to own it or are there going to be companies like uh, you know we think of planet right uh mm. in the u.s planet labs which has done a lot of things and there's in canada there's ghg sat which is doing uh, uh greenhouse uh, gas emissions uh monitoring uh any private companies going to be able to do anything like that and we'll make a quick answer that's a good point. Yeah, no, and there are private companies already doing doing that. So Earth observation, I think, is a little bit less sensitive um, in the sense that you can have you know a few satellites in orbit just getting some data, and, and it's it's yeah. So um, aforementioned company Charming Globe, they have their own constellation. They're fairly commercial, um, and then we've seen a, a few others. Companies like Ada Space uh, have launched some Earth observation satellites as well. So I think on the EO side, we'll see more more commercial companies. 
Hey, we're going to have to leave it at that for, for this podcast. There's so much more I want to ask you, so we're going to get you on uh, in again in, I don't know, as, when we can, in the near future. And, and we're going to talk about some uh, some specific topics. Now, um, before I say uh, that's the end of the podcast, uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to give your own podcast a, a plug because uh, you do your own podcast on a weekly basis now. So uh, here's your chance. Plug it. Well, thank you very much, Mark. And yeah, I encourage all of you to check out the uh, the Dongfang Hour, or the, uh, also known as the Dongfang Hong. Uh, we have a Twitter handle, uh, DF Hour, and uh, you can find us on YouTube. Uh, it is myself and my co-host, Sean Deville. You can also find me on LinkedIn at the hashtag China Space Guy, if you are so inclined. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to, uh, it sounds great to have another episode about China. There's a lot to talk about. Great. So between... Uh, the Space Economy podcast and the Dongfeng Hour, where we're, and I don't know if, how many other people are covering China, but I don't think anybody's doing it quite the way you guys are doing it. So uh, there'll be lots of uh, information out there. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. Have uh, I will continue to uh, look forward to listening to the Space Economy podcast as well. It's been a great, uh, great listen so far. So, well, that's a wrap on this week's episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated, and you can contact us at our new Twitter channel, at The Economy Space. The channel itself is called The Space Economy, but the actual handle is at The Economy Space. As always, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq.